Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. What episode is this? This is episode 95. No way. Yeah, way. 95. Ready? I am ready. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And I'm still shocked that this is episode I know, she 95. kept asking me before the episode, are you sure, Mom? Are you sure? Yep. Mom's always right, apparently, <laughs> because holy cow, guys, this is episode 95. 95. <gasps> Five away from 100. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's just, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So shall we go on with 95 or? I'm just, yeah, I'll just sit here in befuddlement while you go on. Go on, Mom. Okay, well, while Beth is befuddling, I'm going to tell you that I've got the true crime from Washington and befuddled Beth has the paranormal and the drink. So what do you have? What are you drinking? Because we are recording virtually. We are recording virtually and I'm boring and I chose a wine. Hey, Washington has great wines. Yes. And actually, without knowing it, I chose this wine. I was reading the back of it right before I called you and it's from the Columbia Winery. Mm -hmm. And apparently in 1962, a group of friends, including six University of Washington professors, realized the distinctively ideal grape growing conditions of Washington's Columbia Valley. Together, they opened the region's first premium winery, now known as Columbia Winery. Beginning more than 50 years of crafting rich, award-winning, and deliciously drinkable wines. Well, what a wonderful year to start winery. My, winery. What? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I know what you're trying to say. I know it's the year you were born. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So I am drinking alone. Got to catch up with mom for dr- all of her drinking alone. <laughs> Nine episodes. months of it, yeah. So this is the Cabernet is the one I chose. The one I'm drinking was vented, whatever the heck that means, in 2017. Does that mean that it was like barreled? I don't know. Or opened? Do you want me to look it up? Yeah, what does vented mean? Okay, keep talking. I will just keep talking. It's cool because they have the winemaker's signature on here. Uh Uh-huh. And the alcohol by volume content which is 13.9. Anyway, it's the cab. It's actually really good. I'm not a wine wine connoisseur by any means, but it does have a very bold flavor to it. Uh, I don't know, full-bodied, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Hey, I can't open my Google. Mm, let me do it really fast. Vinted, is that what I said? It yes. Vinted means cellared. Okay, got it. And this one was cellared in 2017. (laughs) Cellared. I like vinted better. I know. (laughs) Sounds a little fancier. If I go down to get my suitcase that's in the cellar, I can go, Tom, I'm going to go vent in the... (laughs) 
<laughs> get my suitcase. Mm, no, that sounds odd. I guess you could say my suitcase has been vented. Because <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds so much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Oh, so you're drinking a full-bodied red wine, Cabernet. I can definitely taste, um, again, I don't really know what I'm talking about here, but it's more of like a darker grape. Mm-hmm. Like I can, it's just very like full-bodied, definitely. You have essence of dark cherry. Yeah, it's, of... it says on here that it's blackberry and black currant. Mm, that's my favorite. It is backed by firm tannins and notes of toasted oak and cocoa. <laughs> That's not coming from me. That's coming from the back of the bottle. <laughs> it's not coming from the back of your tongue with the taste there. <laughs> no. It says that it would be good alongside hearty stews, roasts, or wild game meats, and podcasts. <laughs> it doesn't say that. That I made up. But I just got this at my local grocery store. And uh, saw Washington, had to go make a run for diapers anyway, so I figured I would just grab a bottle of wine. So this worked out. And I'm going to sit back and enjoy this bottle. This bottle? (laughs) Not this glass. I'm going to enjoy this bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I just gave myself away there. While you share a true crime, Mom. By the way, this is like the third time we've been to Washington and I've had to do the paranormal. Next time I want the true crime portion for Washington State. Okay, can I say that when we go to D.C.? <laughs> hey, you've only had to do it twice. I've had to do Washington three times. Illinois. There's a few. <laughs> Which is where we're going next week. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the paranormal again. <laughs> again. So, yeah. All right. Well, third time's a charm, Mom. For you or for me? So. Hopefully both. <laughs> well, I'm pretty excited about sharing this story with you and our listeners because not very many people have heard of this guy. Tell me if he rings a bell in your head. <laughs> you and your ringing bells, I swear. <laughs> there are no bells. But anyway. Okay, so 12 years before Gary Ridgway, you know, the Green River Killer, and his savage killing spree began. You know, the first time we were in Washington. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, 12 years before Gary Ridgway and five years before the term serial killer was coined, there was, da-da, Gary Grant. And not many people have heard of Grant. And that is Gary, not Carrie. I know. That's what I was just <laughs> thinking. I was like, why does that sound like a celebrity or somebody I know? Oh, Cary Grant. Oh, here I am swooning. I am swooning right now. Anyway, but I'm not swooning about Gary. Gary is, in fact, sometimes referred to as, quote, the forgotten serial killer. Hmm. He was born on June 29th, 1951 in Renton, Washington. He grew up in a trailer park on the outskirts of the city. His parents often struggled to pay their bills, and his mother was an alcoholic. His days growing up were filled with his parents fighting. These fights were not just words thrown at each other. According to one source, Grant's mother would often throw things, you know, like, plates and glasses and frying pans. Oh my gosh. Father and son learned how to dodge these things, but you can imagine the stress that would have caused this little boy growing up in this environment. Grant entered his teen years as a very high, strong, stressed out young man, so much so that he dropped out of school at around 15 or 16. I think 
I might have read into it, but I think he was always a little off. So I think kids made fun of him too. So that stress of school and he didn't do very well with his lessons. So he... And he didn't have like a safe place. No. Then his grades were really bad and then kids made fun of him. So, you know, that would cause his stress even more. And yeah, so he dropped out of school. He then joined the Navy. But if you can imagine school stressing him out, being in the military was way beyond that. And within a few months, he was dismissed. He returned to Renton in the trailer park living with his parents. It was shortly after his return that the residents of quiet Renton received very disturbing news. I will tell you here that not all, but a lot of my information is from the book Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. It was written by Cloyd Steiger, published in January 2020. Steiger worked for the Seattle Police Department for 36 years. He did not work on this case specifically. In fact, he didn't even know about the serial killer. And then the more he looked into it, the more he thought, I'm going to write a book about this. He spent his last 22 years as a homicide detective. So what I'm trying to say there is he knows what he's writing about. And he had access to a lot of the police records and that kind of stuff to do with this case. Interesting. Okay. So on December 15th, 1969, at around 7 15 p.m., 19-year-old Carol Erickson was walking home alone along a dirt road from the Renton Library. Carol had graduated from high school the year before and was at this time a culinary arts student at the Renton Vocational Tech Institute. As Carol was walking, she was suddenly attacked, stabbed with a knife, and killed. The murderer had dragged her body into the nearby vegetation, had sex with the body, and then proceeded to wrap her shoelaces around her neck so tightly that it created marks. A man walking along the dirt road the following morning found the body. The police were called, who in turn called in detectives. Now, as I stated before, Renton was a very quiet community. Uh, The police department did not consist of a homicide division, obviously. Detectives at the department hardly ever had to deal with... (laughs) going to say Mayberry Hard, hardly ever had to deal with murder and if they did you and your dang Mayberry on the brain all well the I'll tell you oh why in just a minute so if they did have to deal with murder it would be the obvious killer kind you know bar somebody pulls out a gun or, or whatever you know it like the cu- killer basically would be caught red-handed okay okay so this whodunit stuff it's not something that they were used to and some of them had never worked it so, and I, I was referencing, referencing Mayberry in my mind because one source actually did compare Renton to Mayberry at the time. So it was oh. just kind of a quiet, you know, people didn't lock their doors. Boy, have we ever covered those stories before. I feel like a lot of our stories <laughs> are that way. It was a quiet town. <laughs> Several detectives showed up at the crime scene as well as Captain Bill Frazee who took control of the scene. Now remember that name. It comes into play later. Detectives investigated every lead, from Carol's boyfriend to her roommate to a past boyfriend who had returned to Renton for a visit. Every lead turned into a dead end. On September 19th, 1970, 17-year-old Joanne Zuloff 
decided to take a walk before dinner. When she didn't return, her parents became worried. After making a few phone calls to friends of Joanne's with no avail, they got into their truck and started searching the neighborhood. By 10.30 p.m. and no Joanne, her parents were frantic. They called into the King County Sheriff's Office to report their daughter missing, only to be told that teens often go out on their own, but come back. Oh, blah, blah, blah. They were told to call the next day if Joanne had not returned, which they did. After listening to Joanne's parents, Sheriff Deputy Moffat had a sense that this was not a runaway situation. This girl had made plans or after dinner, she was going to meet with her best friend and go bike riding. She didn't take her purse. She didn't take her glasses. She didn't take her phone. You know, it was like, uh, this girl is not running away. Right. She was literally just going for a walk. Literally. Exactly. Now, what year was this? 1970. I guess she didn't have a phone. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. Okay. She didn't take her keys. She didn't take her purse. She didn't take her glasses, okay? (laughs) She didn't take her iPad. She didn't take... They were very advanced in Washington at the time. (laughs) I think that hit you and I both at the same time. Yeah. Uh, What did I just say? So... Sheriff Deputy Moffat started asking questions. A neighbor down the block said that he had actually seen Joanne that evening before walking past his house and turned to walk on a trail that went into the woods. A search and rescue team was called out, and shortly after midnight, Joanne's nude body was found in the woods off of the trail, almost 36 hours after she went missing. She had been hit over the head with what looked to be a rock. She had been raped and strangled to death with what may have been a belt from the marks on her neck. Detectives followed leads, asking questions, and got nowhere. On April 20th, 1971, two six-year-old boys, Scott Andrews and Bradley Lyons, were playing in Bradley's backyard. They were last seen by Mrs. Lyons at around 11 a.m. An extensive search was conducted, but it wasn't until the evening of April 22nd, so two days later, that the bodies of the boys were found in a heavily wooded area about two miles from the home. Oh, my God. The killer had tried to hide the bodies under some ferns and leaves. Scott had been stabbed three times. Bradley had been killed by strangulation by some kind of ligature. Both bodies showed signs of having been beaten around the face. At the crime scene were also found two footprints of which casts were made. Investigators were determined to find some kind of evidence, so they continued looking, which paid off on April 28th. Okay, so the bodies were found on April 22nd. These guys did not give up. I guess they figured if the killer left footprints, he had to have left something else behind. Right. I was actually just about to say that. So on the 28th, they found... They found... We're leaving us hanging here, Mom. I am, I know. I'm leaving myself (laughs) hanging because I couldn't find my place. Found a hunting (laughs) knife about 156 feet from the murder site. The knife had dried blood on the blade, which matched Scott's blood type. Hey, ha-ha. And the knife handle even had a name on it. How convenient is that? Yeah. Oh, wow. A name was inscribed on it. Tom Everson. No, Tom Evenson. (laughs) What did it say? (laughs) 
Tom Evenson. I thought I was drinking alone here. <laughs> yeah, I did have a drink before we started, but okay. Unfortunately, after being questioned, Tom said that he had sold the knife. So they talked to that next person. That person also said he had sold the knife to someone else. Oh, no. So they questioned that person. And that person said that they owned the knife, but had let a friend borrow it. The name of the friend? Gary Grant. So do they have these two boys tied with the other two women? No. Case-wise? Or, and okay. the two women aren't even tied together. Because look at right. this. I mean, the, it's two, it's a complete different murder scenario. Mm-hmm. The one was stabbed in the back and yep. the other... The other one was hit with a rock. Yeah. Two complete different scenarios. And then we have two little boys. I mean, oh, random. God, just, just They're Aiden's age. It always just makes my gut hurt but weirdly one of the boys was stabbed like the first victim and the other boy strangled like the second victim Mm -hmm. i mean just Mm -hmm. okay so gary grant let's go talk to this guy i bet this is it but i'm gonna throw a wrench in here because at around that time another man john chancy a mentally unstable army vet had already admitted to police of committing the murders of the two boys, okay, not the women. He also claimed now to be a son of Saturn, the oh planet, boy. <laughs> and claimed to have personally met Jesus in a nearby city. It wasn't long before investigators noted John's paranoid schizophrenic tendencies. And the weird thing, though, about him was he knew many details of the six-year-old boy's murders. So even if he was schizophrenic or they noticed odd behaviors, they still can't necessarily write him off because they can't. He still confessed. No, and he, he did confess details. and he knew these details. So the detectives would have been negligent had they just said, uh, you're just, you know, moving on. Yeah. You're just loony. We're just going to push you out. So they didn't. OK, they kept hold of him. And he was held in custody for the murders of the boys. He was eventually released on May 10th released hopefully to help <laughs> and all charges were dropped against him yes i believe he did and uh, they did pass him on to an institute and he, he did get help well as much as he could I hope i hope okay by may 10th actually before that there was another suspect the police had in custody and this one had a tie to the bloody hunting knife and that of course was grant detectives interviewed 19 year old grant Oh, my God. April 30th, 1971. First at his trailer, then at the station. Grant was unable to provide an alibi for the day of the boys' murders. His next line of defense was that he was suffering from amnesia, and he couldn't remember anything. He couldn't remember where he was. He didn't remember what he was doing. He didn't remember whether he'd ever crossed the two boys. He didn't remember anything. Ugh, that just makes me so mad. Then after a little bit more pushing and shoving from the police, Grant broke down and started crying, saying, I don't know who I don't know why I killed them. I like little boys. I don't know. That's creepy to me. But but he didn't stop there. He admitted to also killing Carol Erickson and Joanne Zuloff and details about all four murders. Slam dunk, right? We got a confession. We're tying all these murders together. We got him. Yeah. Nope. The next day, Grant met with his lawyer and his father in a room at the station. There, he once again confessed to the murders. 
But Captain Frazy, remember that name? Yes. From the very beginning? From the very beginning, from the very first He murder. did something that almost set this murderer free. He installed recording devices in the interrogation room. Without telling them. Which, of course, violated the lawyer-client confidentiality. Grant's lawyers filed a motion. Was he just naive? Or did he not know any better? No, he knew better. He knew better. And I don't know whether... an idiot. You know, these recording devices supposedly had been installed before. I mean, he just had these installed in the room. So maybe it worked before, but... Grant's lawyers caught on to it and they filed a motion to drop all charges against Grant since his constitutional rights had been violated. Because they had been. They had been. He has rights too. And they could have easily dropped. The only thing that saved this case is the fact that he did confess before that meeting in the room. Exactly. Yeah. He did confess to the police. That confession was legally recorded. So they did have a legal recording of his confession. So close call. So close. Oh, this stupid move by Captain Frazee, who, by the way, was charged with unlawful electronic interception of a conversation. He was placed on leave and retired shortly thereafter. He did receive four months probation with no jail time. This could have been a year-long jail sentence. But Mm. I think he... uh, he probably got the punishment that was needed. So Grant's trial began on August 12th, 1971. I I was looking at this. Remember, we've done some cases where the guy sits in jail for like a year or two before his trial war- comes on, you know? A lot of, yeah. And then, so he gets that time taken away from his sentence right. because he's already served, right? Right. Well, they arrested Grant April 30th of 1971 he went on trial August 12th of 1971 wow yeah I thought that was a really fast turnaround it is it is a fast turnaround the evidence was his confession the bloodstained knife witnesses and remember the casts that were made from the shoe prints that were Mm -hmm. found at the boys murder site those prints matched perfectly with the tennis shoes Grant was wearing on the day he was arrested There you go. (laughs) Closed case for sure. Now, having nowhere else to go, Grant's lawyers, of course, pushed his insanity and brought in their own witnesses who stated that they had always known Grant to be passive and harmless. The defense team also pushed for a psychiatric exam, (laughs) which kind of backfired. The exam results found Grant to be sane. It did conclude that he did have trouble controlling himself, especially in high-stress situations. The jury convened for two days before reaching a verdict on August 25th. Grant was found guilty of all four murders and was sentenced to four consecutive life terms with no parole. So he is still alive. He's 70 years old, and he is serving his sentence at the Monroe Correctional Complex in Monroe, Washington. He killed four people. I've never heard killed of this four. guy. That's just crazy. Killed four people. Yeah. And they were pushing for the death penalty. The prosecution was. And that's why the defense was bringing up that, you know, he's insane. He has all these problems. He was raised, you know, with parents that fought. Uh, and they were pulling on the, the heartstrings of the jury. Sure. And I th- think that 
No, you know? I don't think he should be like rehabilitated or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, it always falls back to that nature versus nurture conversation. Like he just couldn't handle the stress situation. No, he was. Um, yeah, he was and a really high strung. In him, he was a really high strung guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what would make. Was he just happened to pass? I mean, while I was researching this, I was just like, yeah, but what was his mode? What were his motives? Yeah, that's I mean, what I was just thinking too. Like these people were kind of, I mean, a random places. It's not like he went to a pub and picked up women at this pub. I right. mean, it was just like he was on this dirt road. Mm-hmm. And he happened to see this girl, or did he stalk his victims before? Or yeah, and then the girl that was did he? How did he the see woods? the little boys playing? Yeah, and how did yeah? You know, it just in my mind, it was just like how, what was his motive of killing these people, and how did he find them? That's, yeah, how did I mean, he see two little boys playing in the backyard as a stressful situation that he had to attack them? Like, I I don't know. I really I really don't know. And then. You know, they they were found about two miles from their house. How did he get two little boys there? I mean, I, I don't know. During the day. She said the last time she saw them was at 11 a.m. That's crazy. Yeah. That yeah. no neighbors saw them being lured somewhere. Lured somewhere. I don't know. That just didn't. Uh, and I did not read the entire book. I, I want to, though, because it's from the parts that I have read. He writes really well. Mm-hmm. And it's seems really interesting and maybe he covers all that in the book but on all the sources that I looked at motive was never covered I even read the court report and motive wasn't really covered on the report that I read so I think I'll pick up this book in all my spare time and (laughs) I'll take a gander at it because I think it would be very very interesting and again the name of that book is Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant, written by Cloyd Steiger. Yeah, all of our free time. I have so many people, oh, you should watch this, or oh my gosh, have you seen this new document? <laughs> Docu- what is that word? Why can't I say it? I couldn't say it earlier when I was talking to Alex Documentary. Either. Documentary. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, let me add it to the list. Between <laughs> research for different cases and haunted places, it's it's hard. If it doesn't fit into an episode, I can't tell you the last time I just sat and watched something. Actually, I am now binging when I can. Only Murders in the Building or whatever it's called with... Um, oh, I've heard of that. Steve Martin and... Oh, yeah, Gomez. yeah. Oh, my gosh. They're making a podcast and oh, oh, just so well done. Steve Martin is like one of my faves. Anyway. I don't think I get that, so it's probably a good thing. Well, the episodes are only 30 minutes long, which like 30, 40 minutes long, which I like because when they're like hour long episodes, well, I can watch one before I go to bed and it's not too an hour leads into I got to figure out what's going on the next hour. By the time you're done, you've watched three hours. I know. That's a lot. So it's not just it's one hour. I forgot. I'm talking to the binge queen over here. Oh, I love to binge. Oh, my gosh. Tom hates it. Hates it. I haven't binged in a while. <laughs> Again, all that free time. Uh huh. Where does it go? So I I did look up something that has nothing to do with this case, but you know how I like to just kind of look and see where things come from. And so a serial killer. 
Okay, the term serial killer. Mm -hmm. Where and when was it coined? Mindhunter. Well, according to this book, Peter Vronsky, in his 2004 book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, the term serial killer was probably coined by the late FBI agent and profiler Robert Ressler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recognize that name. In Mindhunter, Ford the lead his mm-hmm. the guy that he works with bill tench i think that's his bill i think is his character's name he's based off robert wrestler wrestler oh cool yeah cool okay so according to the story wrestler was lecturing at the british police academy in Bromshill, england in 1974 where he heard the description of some crimes as occurring in series or rapes, arsons, burglaries, robberies, and murders all happening in series. And the description reminded him of the movie industry term serial adventures, which referred to short episodic films featuring likes of Batman and the Lone Ranger that were shown in theaters on Saturday afternoons. Each week, the audience was lured back for the next installment in the series by an inconclusive ending known as a cliffhanger and left them wanting more. This is why mom's a binger. (laughs) So the FBI agent recalled from his youth that no episode had a satisfactory conclusion and the end of each one increased rather than decreased the tension in the viewer. You starting so, to make a correlation here? Yes. So Ressler believed that the conclusion of every murder increased the tension and desire of a serial killer to commit a more perfect murder in the future, one closer to his fantasy or her fantasy. And rather than being satisfied when they murdered, serial killers are instead agitated towards repeating their killings in an unending serial cycle. So interesting i just yeah i had to share that with I you because i know it has nothing to do phrase. with the story except that i told you a story about a serial killer but it just like where does that even come from i know an fbi agent came up with it but where does it really how did he think of that term i think that's so interesting very cool yeah he um wrestler like worked on Dahmer's case he even worked on ted bundy's case i think he he really got into the serial yeah. uh, murders and tried well, to get started, into the serial murder mind. Yeah, he started seeing a pattern. It, it's, ugh, it's just crazy. Crazy, but, you know, we're attracted to it all the same. Well, I think that's why I'm so attracted to it is it's more of just like, how do these minds work? I just work. don't. Like, what made that guy snap when he saw two children playing in a yard? Like, what made exactly. that man See a girl walking into a woods and say, I don't know. I'm going to kill her. And and what made it, it him snap at that girl and not at the five other girls that he passed that day or the day before? You know, I, know. I mean, so intrigues me in this case because it's that's un, for me, it's unresolved. <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? I know what I mean. All right. What do you got for me, girl? OK, so. My story this week for the paranormal portion isn't necessarily paranormal as more as just a very haunting story. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay, so I first heard of this story when I was researching one of my other hauntings in Washington. 
But <laughs> then I saw an episode of The Dead Files where they went to this location. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to dive more into this story. And this is okay. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, okay. This is the story of two sisters, Dorothea or Dora, is as she was is what she was called, and Claire Williamson. Their parents actually both died when the youngest sister, Claire, was only 14 years old. Mm. They were left in the care of their governess, Margaret, who was like a mother to them. They weren't doing the greatest until their Scottish grandfather came into the picture and Either he died or he gifted them. I'm not exactly sure. I think he died. But the two young girls ended up with over $1 million oh. in American money and properties all over the world. Wow. With, which left me to question, Mom, do I have some hidden Scottish grandfather out there? Not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty cool <laughs> if I did. <laughs> I'd say so. So Dora and Claire were very wealthy. They were very worldly. And I guess progressive would be the best word for it. They were vegetarians. Oh, what year is this? It, I was just going to say, I didn't give a year. This was 1910. Oh, way back when. Yeah. So they're very progressive. They were vegetarians. They were very quirky and eccentric. Um, the two, especially Claire, was very obsessed with clean living and healing their bodies, which I find so funny because isn't that what was still preached today is this clean living <laughs> stuff? Anyway, actually, while staying at the Empress Hotel, there's a couple ties to two different stories in this story. Okay. So they were staying at the Empress Hotel and they were introduced. I think they read it in the newspaper. An idea were some kind of treatment led by a Dr. Linda Hazard. She had a treatment that would clean their bodies from the inside out. She had a cure for all ailments. The ultimate clean living plan at Wilderness Heights Institute of Natural Therapeutics. Dr. Hazard had this sanita sanitarium. Is that how you pronounce it? Sanatorium. Sanitarium. Picture this picturesque atmosphere in the Northwest Mountains with clean air and the potential to clean their bodies and aid all of their ailments. Claire's ailment being some digestive issues and Dora had achy knees. Another thing that pulled them into Dr. Hazard. Hey, that kind of sums you and me up. I got the aching knees. And I have digestive, digestive issues. issues. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that pulled them into Dr. Hazard was the fact that she was a female doctor mm -hmm. running her own practice, building and running her own sanitarium all on her own. No men. In 1910. That's crazy. Claire wrote to Dr. Hazard in Seattle from the Empress asking her to take them on as patients. Dr. Hazard responded that they needed to come to see her in Seattle and they could begin treatment with her. She would then move them into the sanitarium when it was ready. The sisters did not share their plan with friends or family in fear that they would be made fun of. Because this treatment that Dr. Hazard led, this 
cure of anything from cancer, psoriasis, heart disease, tuberculosis, insanity, Dora's sore knees and Claire's digestive issues. The cure was fasting. (laughs) I'm sorry. But that's people nowadays cure too for some. This is to a whole other extreme. Oh, like starvation. Quote, overeating is the vice of the whole human race. Unquote. And that was from Dr. Hazard. And basically what she means in her terms is eating in general is the vice of the whole human race. Oh, On February 27th, 1911, the Williamson sisters arrived in Seattle. They went straight to Dr. Hazard's office in downtown where she diagnosed the two as sick right away. They needed to begin treatment as soon as possible. There was no physical exam done. There was no use. They must begin treatment. Now, this treatment plan was not just fasting, but also included massage on their bodies and in their bodies. Dr. Hazard explained it as massage when really it was beatings, (gasps) pounding on the patient's heads, stomachs, backs, and the internal massage was enemas. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Given a couple times a week. The cost was $60 per sister, five days a week for their massages, external and internal, hot scalding baths. And she made them walk, walk, walk. Diet included boiling tomatoes in a quart of water. No seasoning, no salt. They could eat one cup of this tomato broth twice a day. That's it? Later, they were allowed some orange juice as well as asparagus broth. Ew. She moved them into this apartment downtown where she oversaw their treatments. She told them when to eat did their massages and their enemas. 30-minute enemas led to hour-long enemas. Oh, no. Led to all-day enemas. Some of these... What? Sometimes they would last eight hours. What? Over time, a hammock was hung over their bathtub in the apartment for when the girls would pass out because that happened a lot. It was not uncommon for one of them to watch as her sister just passed out from the pain or collapsed as they took one of their walks oh my how old were these i'm sorry how old were these girls in their 30s i believe the youngest claire was like 34 and the oldest was maybe like 37 okay um and i want you to remember dora's original ailment was achy knees yeah yeah like okay yeah Over time, the girls were separated in their own apartment. I mean, they would not, they could barely walk. I mean, but they wouldn't do anything unless Hazard allowed them to. Claire was told that Dora was losing her mind. She was going insane and that no decision could be trusted with her. Because of this, land deeds, money, and jewelry were given to Dr. Hazard for safekeeping. Oh, yeah, whatever. Oh, I hate this person. Soon it was time for the girls to be moved out to Olalo. Olola? Olala? La 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 la. Olola? Olala? Olala. I don't know. Olala, Washington. It's across the sound from Seattle to the Wilderness Heights Institute of Natural Therapeutics, 
or as the locals knew it as, Starvation Heights. The girls were transferred in individual ambulances provided by Seattle's premier mortuary, (gasps) E.R. Buttersworth. Oh, no. Do you remember that, guy? Yeah, I do. Remember from, oh gosh, I meant to look at the episode. It was the one where we covered Washington. (laughs) No, duh. Um, But it was that full service mortuary where they had funerals, burials, ambulances, morgue space. So, and I mentioned Dr. Linda Hazard in that episode, just like glazed over her Uh a little bit. But the relationship between Butterworth and Hazard is. It's not exactly known, but it is definitely assumed the two colluded together in a few things. Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. Before getting on the ferry to head to the sanitarium, Dr. Hazard's attorney, John Arthur, met with Claire inside her ambulance. A letter was written to that old governess, Margaret, informing her that she would be updating her and her sister's wills, leaving money to Hazard Institute, and she wanted her body cremated by Hazard. They then headed to Olala. Now, Olala was a small town. It was a working class farming community and there was maybe like 350 people that lived there. It was mostly Scandinavian immigrants. It's just odd that this is where she chose, I think maybe because it was kind of off the beaten path. But Mm -hmm. like you have these working class farmers and then here's Dr. Hazard and her patients with their spiritualism and eccentric philosophies and like... So it's just it's just interesting that that's where she chose. So the girls are put in an attic room above Dr. Hazard's room at the sanitarium, which was actually just basically Linda Hazard's house. Now, they're in the attic, but they're kept separated by this sheet that she would hang between the two beds. And I think Mm -hmm. she placed them above her bedroom so that she could keep an ear out. Mm -hmm. When they moved to Starvation Heights, Claire was 50 pounds. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Now, somehow, people aren't exactly sure how, but Claire wrote another message or telegram or what have you to Margaret. So the first one she wrote with the lawyer, Mm -hmm. you know, saying, I want to be cremated and I'm leaving everything here, blah, 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 blah. But then somehow another message went out and it was a really odd message. And it basically requested Margaret to come to her. And Margaret headed there right away. When she arrived in Seattle, she was greeted by Dr. Hazard's husband, where he informed her that Claire had died weeks ago and that Dora had gone helplessly insane. He took Margaret to Dr. Hazard's office to meet with her and discuss the matter. Margaret had no idea what she was coming into when she left Australia to come and visit with Claire and Dora. Oh, she left Australia to... Wow, so that letter got to her in Australia? Mm-hmm. It got to her in Australia where she was. So it took her a while to, by boat, to get to Seattle. And by the right. time she got there, Claire had already died. Okay. And she really did die. She really did die. Okay. 50 pounds. Sorry, I didn't, didn't preference that very well. Um, so she had no idea what she was walking into. When she had last seen them, they were healthy, vibrant, robust girls. I mean, what is what is going on? She meets with Dr. Hazard where the doctor gives Margaret full details. I mean, full details of the autopsy that she herself performed <gasps> on Claire. Oh, yes, you heard me right. Dr. Hazard performed her own 
autopsies. Yeah, well, she that's stupid. I can tell you right now what Claire died of. Well, Jesus. that's the why she did the autopsies. Oh, because, of course. Of sure. Course. We can say she died of starvation, but in the autopsy, there was always something else that she found. And this is like how she could say her patients died from something else. So in Claire's case, it was cirrhosis of the liver. Her blood had powdered and her internal organs had shrunk. Yeah. Well, then doc- they had. Then Dr. Hazard's like, you want to see her? <gasps> no. Now this is 1911 and embalming was still this like new thing in the United States. A lot of people weren't exactly sure how they felt of this new process. Now Margaret, like I said, is from Australia and this was like a really, really new thing for her. <laughs> okay. But she agreed to go to the Butterworth and Sons mortuary to see Claire. But the body that lay before her when she arrived was not Claire. And Dr. Hazard just kept going on and on about how, oh, I embalmed her so beautifully. The embalming process is just beautiful. And Margaret's like, that does not look anything like my Claire. The dress she recognized, but the woman in it, not at all. Not at all. Her hair, I mean, everything about her was wrong. Here, Dr. Hazard expressed that Claire wanted to be cremated. So that process was to happen soon because her ashes were to be buried in Olala. Margaret is shocked. Her Claire would have wanted to be buried back in Australia or England with family. This was just so off. She wanted to go see Dora for answers right away. Now, by now, Dora had moved into this little cabin in the woods, which originally was promised to the two sisters that remember they were going to move to some like mountain oasis and live in their own little cabin but they started in an apartment and then they moved into linda hazard's home and now finally all on her own dora's in this yes a picturesque atmosphere but she this poor woman so not only was it margaret that was thrown for all of this mess so the girls had a relative an uncle john that lived in the states he came to Seattle when he heard of Claire's passing. He, too, swore that the girl in the coffin was, was not, not her. Claire. And he was just shocked at her death. I guess he had seen the girls in the last six months. Oh. And now they one of them was dead and the other one was basically insane. Like, what in God's name is happening? So Dr. Hazard, to prove her point that Claire was, in fact, dead and why she died pulled out a handkerchief, opened it up on her desk in front of Uncle John, revealing organs. (gasps) Showing, look, see how small they are? They shrunk. That's why she died. Oh my gosh. Now, by this time, Margaret had moved into the small cabin and was caring for Dora. Dora was in very poor health, absolutely wasted away. But in caring for her, Margaret started to piece things together. In Dora's poor state, before Margaret's arrival, she had made Dr. Hazard's husband her power of attorney. There were also inserts in Claire's diary that Margaret believed to have been forged. Just the way that the diary was written, it just didn't sound like Claire. And I guess there was even an instance that in Claire's diary, it referred to Claire as Claire and not I. Oh, ouch. (laughs) That might have been a red flag right there. But the insert that she was reading 
that she thought was forged, declared that Linda ha- Dr. Linda Hazard to be in control of her diamonds, her remains, and all of her possessions. Ugh. Dora wants out, but then the next day she tells Margaret, no, I need to finish my treatment. I mean, I can only imagine the state of mind. Like, you go to get this treatment. You're told time and time again that it's going to work. Now your sister's dead. Like, you've lost so much. You can't give up now. You know what I mean? By this time, you might be brainwashed, too, thinking that this is going to be the treatment. Like, this has to, like, it has to work. I've lost so much. I just lost my sister. This has to work. I've been promised so much. It has to happen. I've given up so much. Yeah. But the truth of what had happened to Claire and what was happening to Dora was becoming clear. It was discovered that Dr. Linda Hazard wasn't even a real doctor. Oh, big surprise there. She had no medical degree, but she had found some loopholes that she could practice alternative medicine. Yay. She was a fasting specialist. (laughs) God bless it. Claire's body was autopsied in a bathtub in Dr. (gasps) Hazard's home without any proper documentation the body was moved by er butterworth and sons mortuary without a permit butterworth and hazard had this really suspicious relationship because keep in mind the williamson sisters were not her only patients right right there was another patient that died i think a year or two beforehand and the funeral fees were like astronomical But people believe that this funeral fee paid by Hazard was a front and that he worked at like switching bodies out for her, like in Claire's case. Oh, does that make sense? So another one of Dr. Well, I'm just going to call her Linda Hazard's. Another one of her patients died. Okay. And Butterworth charged Linda Hazard this astronomical fee that just really didn't even make any sense, but it was paid. And People think that that was just a front for other things that he was doing behind the scenes for her, like hiding bodies or what have you. Okay. So why why did he switch the bodies? Probably because she looked like she weighed 40 pounds. And okay. so people would say she died of starvation. It's very clear that this woman died of starvation. But Linda okay. Hazard's covering all of her bases. If she switches the body, the body wants to be, you know, she has them sign that they want to be cremated. She's performing all the autopsies herself so she can put that there was another way that that person died. So she's trying to cover okay. all these bases. Dr. Hazard, well, Linda Hazard, had land deeds and family bank accounts written over to her by her patients. And that's actually how she ended up making her sanitarium was or that home where she housed these patients was another patient's money. When they died, they left it all to her. So she built this house. Oh, yes. She sold patients gold teeth to dentists. There was actually a dentist that was like right across the street. She would sell him the gold teeth. And then, yeah, you're right. She just basically brainwashed and slowly murdered these poor people. Dora got out. Long story short, Linda Hazard claimed that she was owed thousands upon thousands of dollars for the treatment. And I guess after the court, John, uh, the uncle John ended up paying like $900 to get Dora out of there. Mm -hmm. 
And but they did go to court over all of this. When she escaped, Dora was 60 pounds. Oh, my gosh. So Dora escaped, but at least 20 other patients did not. People estimate 20 to 40 patients died under Linda Hazard's treatment plan. We Mm. won't know for sure because like the Williamson sisters, she slowly cut them off from their families and friends. Sure. Or she looked to find people that didn't have a lot of family. So we'll just never really know for sure. A lot of people think that some of those bodies are actually buried there on the property. There's no proof of that. Mm-hmm. Nothing's been found, but that's just kind of a guess. And I I would assume so as well. So like I said, Dora went to trial and testified against Linda Hazard, giving alarming details of the beatings and treatments that went on at the quote unquote facility. In fact, Claire's last moments were just horrible. Claire was crying out to her sister. She knew it was her time, and Dora was trying to make her way across the attic to her when Linda Hazard suddenly stood over them. She went to Claire and asked if she wanted a treatment. Before she could get an answer, she started beating on Claire's empty stomach. Oh. Claire died soon after. These patients died horrific deaths. Linda Hazard was a total monster. She was found guilty of second-degree manslaughter. I guess they couldn't prove that it was premeditated, so that's why she didn't mm-hmm. get first degree. Mm-hmm. But she was sentenced to two years of hard labor at Walla Walla Prison. Two that's years. it. Two years. Wow. She got out, and believe it or not, she found a place and started doing this all over again. She related to the guy that was at the Crescent Hotel? I know. Seriously. Eventually, ironically, she died in 1938 while trying to heal herself with her own methods. So she ended up starving oh. to death. Dora went on to live in Australia. Eventually, she got married and had a child. She died at the age of 71 in Sussex, England. So like I said, the story was covered on an episode of The Dead Files. I don't know if you've seen that show. It's with Psychic. She's a medium. Um, Amy Allen. And she works with a retired detective, Steve Detective, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the show. It's really cool how they do it. But they go into a location and... They don't talk, the detective Mm-mm. and the psychic. Nope, they don't at talk all. at all. They go in separately. And she'll walk in and she'll, you know, talk to the dead that are there. That's what she does. And she'll sense, yeah, and then what he, happened there and stuff. Yeah, and then he will talk to the people that live there, the people that own the property, and kind of get the story on that side and do all, like, the, I almost said boot walking. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> the groundwork, I guess? I don't know. But it's just, it's really crazy how it always pairs up in the end because she has a sketch. It does. It's so weird. Yeah. And Amy Allen will have a sketch artist draw one of the spirits she talked to. And it always matches up perfectly with a picture of somebody that had lived there, somebody that does live there. It's a pretty good show. I it's mean, actually it is really, a good show. It's, a, it's a great idea. Whoever came up with that was brilliant, I tell you. <laughs> um, but so there was a family that bought Linda Hazard's house Ew. and lived in it. And they lived in it for years, and then they built a brand new house, like, next to the old house. Yeah. And then even when they moved into the new house, they were still using bits of the old house for the new house. Like, the banister from the old house, they put in the new house. I mean, it's just... Did they know what they had bought? Yes. (gasps) Ugh. No, sorry. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could either. 
the kid that lived there, he was like 18, 17, 18, I don't remember. He and his friends would go over there and do seances in the old house. Uh-oh. So the show ended, sorry, spoiler, but the show ended with Amy telling the owners of the home that they needed to tear down the old home. It just carried too much negativity. It's not like a cleanse or anything that could cleanse all that out. There was just too many Mm -hmm. souls lost there. And then because that guy was doing all these seances with his friends, they'd open portals and not closed it properly. So now there's like all these extra spirits. Anyway, she's like, you just need to tear this down because these souls will never be at peace until you just get rid of this. Which I thought was interesting because like we hear about uh, hauntings because you built on top of something like. I don't know. I just find it interesting. And the owner's like, yeah, 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 we'll tear it down. We'll tear it down. Yeah, we have to tear it down. And this episode aired in 2012. Then more recently on YouTube, I think it was posted like eight months ago. There was <gasps> it's this, still there. This woman, she's a realtor. It's like realtor gone rogue. And she had permission from the owner because, like I said, their new house is right next to it. So they still own this property. It's a private property. So she had permission from the owner. She was walking through the house in this video, in this YouTube video. It's still there. Oh, stupid. They never tore it down. And I think they have to now because it's in really bad shape. Like the owner told the realtor lady, like, don't go upstairs. We don't we don't trust it. So she's kind of stayed on the main level. But but the bathtub where she would do autopsies on her patients. Yeah. Is yeah. still there. Ew. And there was like all this extra piping that showed that there had been a bathtub hooked up in the middle of the living room, which <gasps> is where patients would have gotten their like scalding baths or their enemas just right there in the middle of the living room. Now, this is, like I said, a private property. So there's not too many reports of hauntings per se. But years ago, before the Dead Files show, tours were given at the home. Oh, And from resources around that time, I got some pretty spooky ghost tales. There are stories of footsteps on the stairs, a lot of moaning and groans of pain heard throughout the home when it was empty. Touches on the back or like on people's necks. There's cold drafts on hot days. The fireplace is said to have odd symbols in it. And these symbols apparently symbolize the seventh gate of hell. Down in the basement, they discovered this small closet. The closet had a small hole cut in the middle of it, just big enough for possibly a bowl of tomato broth to be slid through. Oh, no. Was this a closet for punishment for patients or used as another treatment, perhaps? Whispering was the greatest haunting I read about. Lots and lots of whispers. Like, a lot of people all whispering at once. So you can't quite make out exactly what they were saying. Right. There was an old man that lived down the road from the old home. So he grew up basically just down the street from the home when it was starvation heights. And he remembered seeing skeletons walking in the woods. Skeletal people just walking around the surrounding thick woods of the home. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine a grown woman weighing 50 pounds or 60 pounds. Oh, just... my gosh. You should see this picture. Oh, no, thank you. It, I mean, this poor woman. These poor people. I mean, starving is not. Yeah, y- your, your organs shrink. Like, it's crazy. You basically suffocate to death when you starve. Slowly. So, 
again, it was not like a haunting per se, but it was a very haunting tale. Oh, I'm like thoroughly depressed right now. <laughs> Sorry. That oh man, I was just... supposed to bring you up. The haunting portion is no, supposed to bring you, you up. No, you didn't. That was like really, really awful. <laughs> awful. I'm sorry. Jeez. Oh, and by the way, you didn't do all the hauntings in Washington. I did a haunting too. How many times have we done stories from Washington? What haunting did you do in Washington? I did the um, uh, Mount Rainier uh, Theater in Bellingham. Oh my goodness, we've been to Washington four times? <laughs> Oops. Or maybe just, maybe you thought you did the paranormal? No, this maybe is my this third, because your... I did Baker Theater, and then I did Butter Butterworth Field and Sons, yep, and then right. I did this. Okay, must have covered Washington four times. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of crime in Washington. All along, I'm sorry, guys, but all along that West Coast, I mean, we could we could spend, I think, a whole year covering stories in California from Washington, and Washington, Oregon, <laughs> and Oregon. Yeah, those three states, I yeah. think we could cover. Oh man, it's just um, amazing. <laughs> well, next week you got to bring us up. I did a poor job. I'll I'll try to be better at that next week. Oh yeah, Illinois. Let's see what fun thing I can <laughs> back find. to Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> How hard I had to look the last time. (laughs) This was a true crime story, though, that I really want to cover. And I've been putting it off. So, (laughs) haha. Okay. All right. And we do have a listener that requested Alabama. So, Alabama's after Illinois. Okay. Like I said, if you guys want to see pictures uh, from my tail or mom's, you can check out our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. We'll also put all of our resources from the show there. So you can check it out. Check it out. Thank you, patrons, for our, my drink this week. It's very (laughs) yummy. I've had two and a half glasses. I did not finish the bottle. I had two and a half glasses. Okay. Okay. I'll have to believe you. But thank you, patrons, very much. This is very yummy. If you want to become a patron and buy us a drink, please join us on Patreon. You can find us at Killer Hangover Podcast. We are also on Instagram. TikTok. And if you have a request of a state you want us to cover that's not California, Oregon, or Washington, email us, Killer Hangover Podcast. <laughs> you gmail. can send com. us those states too. We love to hear from all of you. Oh, and we've got something fun, fun, fun planned for the hundred. I know that's kind of down the road, but we do have something fun. Always looking ahead, Mom. I know. I know. Well, it's a new year. Of course, I'm looking ahead positive thinking yep sending it out there sending all the positivity out there and talking about positivity we kind of skipped wishing you a happy birthday yeah you did (laughs) (laughs) well honey there's a lot of stuff that happened between (laughs) here there and everywhere so a belated happy birthday to you, my lovely daughter. Thank you. I am. It's going to be a good year because 33 is my lucky number. And so. And you're going to be th- and you're 33. And I'm 33. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm 33. It's my lucky number. It's a good year. The end. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay. Well, I. Virtual a- cheers, mom. With my tumbler of water. Okay. Cheers. Love you, kid.